0: How many out there are not only not ashamed of the gospel, but delighting in the gospel this morning? Amen. God has done great things for us. The good news that you are loved, not because of how you perform, but because of how Jesus performed in your place. The good news that you don't have to live like an orphan because you've been adopted into the family of God and you have a father now. The good news that you are on the pathway to glory. There's no reason to be ashamed. See, they always want to get me the pre-sermon to get me going. I know how you do. I know how you do. Good morning. I am so glad to be with you once again, Redeemer Church. It's a joy to be down here in the SIP again, supporting my brother, Pastor L. I just want to encourage you and commend your faith to bless your pastor with rest. I promise you, you have not yet heard the best sermons that Albert McGowan is going to preach. He is about to come back on fire, I'm sure of it. So I'm glad to be able to step in as a humble replacement for my dear brother. And uh, so glad to hear of all that God has been doing in your midst. Pastor L's been sharing about how the Lord has been at work, how he's been growing your community, and how you all have been stretching into the mission. So I want to come along and bring God's word to encourage you and strengthen you in that work. Our passage of scripture for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. A familiar parable, but we're going to work through it because God's word is endlessly rich. Amen. So we expect that every time we come to God's word, God is not going to fail to accomplish what he sends his word for in our lives. So let us now hear our text for this morning from the gospel of Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. This is The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself. And what you have revealed about yourself is that you are full of grace, that you are kind, that you are just, that you are holy. And all of us have to reckon with all of these characteristics that you have revealed yourself to have. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hear from your word and not just hear random biblical truths, not just learn basic biblical data, but that we would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and that it would be worked into our souls, that we would receive your grace afresh this morning. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, my family plotted on me for Christmas and they bought me a Fitbit. Now, I didn't ask for a Fitbit, but my family bought me a Fitbit. And if you're not familiar with what a Fitbit is, a Fitbit is like a little watch. And what it does is it counts your steps every day to let you know how many steps you are taking in the day. And the Fitbit comes programmed with the American Heart Association's metric that says that you have to walk 10,000 steps a day in order to have a healthy heart. And so I put the Fitbit on because it looked kind of decent, but I didn't really care too much about my family's designs for my life. I thought I was in shape already because in my mind, round is a shape. But I put the watch on and I started to walk and what the Fitbit does is it gives you these notifications Every day during the day and by the time I got to the end of the first day the notification said keep going Russ You're only 9,000 steps away from your goal (laughs) And I said I don't need all this negativity in my life. I don't need all this judgment So I went into the program And Move the goal down to a thousand steps And so every day I would get the notifications and they would say good job Russ. You're killing it You're smashing your goals and at the end of 30 days I had the nerve to come to my wife and say hey, babe 30 days of meeting my goal You see the standard of Fitbit didn't suit me So I just adjusted the standard to fit what I was already doing I was avoiding the standard to my own detriment. Now, in the scriptures, the Lord has given us a standard of neighbor love that is required for us to have a healthy heart. He has given us a standard of cross-cultural love that is supposed to get us going in the directions that he has called us to go. You know, every time we get into the scriptures, we get the notification that that encourages us along into this this way of living, this this life of having a healthy heart before God that's demonstrated in loving neighbor. We think we're healthy, but more often than not, what we do is we go into the, the program of scripture and we reinterpret the scriptures in such a way that we actually lower the barrier of neighbor love. We, we reduce the standard so that the standard fits what we're already doing. And we have the nerve to boast about our theology and our heritage while we leave the call to neighbor love largely left untouched in a lot of our lives. We have fooled ourselves into thinking that we can have a healthy heart before God ...without living out this life of neighbor love to which he's called us. We think that we can actually have a healthy heart by simply loving those who love us back. By simply loving those who are like us and who share our affinities. So today, we're going to take a look at this iconic parable, the Good Samaritan parable. And what we're going to do, Lord willing, is we're going to see from this parable why jesus is beautiful and believable and so we're going to approach this text through two points we're going to see the call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love the call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love so let's look at our first point the call to neighbor love now if you look at the text beginning with verse 25 what you notice is that we don't get a whole lot of context do we we don't get a whole lot of context that leads us up to this passage, but we are invited in on this conversation that Jesus is having with a lawyer. Now, it's not your typical lawyer of today. A lawyer at this time was an expert in the Mosaic law. They were, uh, they were scholars in that field, and they were aware of what all the rabbis and teachers of the day were talking about. And this lawyer... Rises to ask Jesus a question and his question is this what shall I do to inherit eternal life This was the most pressing theological question of the day And the lawyer is sort of throwing this question out to Jesus To determine whether or not Jesus was some kind of radical teacher or if he was orthodox What we're going to see by the end Of this story is that Jesus presents an orthodoxy that has radical implications. He's trying to test Jesus and he asks Jesus this question, and Jesus responds back to him with a question. And he says, What do the scriptures teach? How do you read them? And the man lays out the confession of every Orthodox Jew at the time. This was standard response. This was the core confession of all Jewish people. And it went like this. Here's the answer. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This statement was simply a combining of Deuteronomy six, the Shema and Leviticus 19, the blending together of those captured the essence of the faith for the Jews at the time. And Jesus tells the man, you're right. Do this and you will live. But then the lawyer just has to ask one more question. And he pushes Jesus and Jesus sees a window open up to begin to engage the man's heart. The man replies back to Jesus and he says, and who is my neighbor? And in response to this, Jesus begins to tell the man a story. Jesus begins to tell the man a story about a man who was on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this man falls into trouble. Now, this was a treacherous journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was like basically like. Climbing down a mountain. It was a steep decline. It was very rugged. It, there were lots of caves on the road where robbers could hide and ambush you. It was a very dangerous journey. And this, this man falls in with robbers and he, is, and he is attacked. Okay? Now, at this point, what we have to appreciate is the fact That Judaism was very clear that if you were going to love God, you had to love God's image. For example, if I had a picture of my mom right here and I tore it, you would not conclude that I had a problem with photographs. You would you would conclude I have a problem with my mother in a similar way. Every faithful Jew was aware of the fact that if you destroyed God's image, you had a problem with God. But there were two primary ways that they would get themselves out of the requirements of neighbor love. The first thing that they would do is that they would isolate from the sinners out there. And if they isolated from those sinners, if they just stuck in their little controlled group of people like them, then they would never run into those sinners out there and then the requirements of neighbor love wouldn't be so difficult. Because they would only ever be around people who were like them and shared their sensibilities. People who were easy to love, easy to like, easy to understand. They never were in the way of people who were radically different, who conflicted with them. That was the first way, to isolate yourself. The second way that they avoid, avoided the, the command is they justified themselves. You see that in the text. Look at verse 29, and who is my neighbor? It seems... Like an innocent, honest question, doesn't it? Like the man's just trying to get a little bit of clarification. But, but Luke tells us that the man was trying to justify himself. In other words, what he wanted to do is he wanted to get this neighbor love thing figured out in such a way that it demonstrated he was already doing it. What he wanted to do is he wanted to reduce the demands down to something that he understood to be reasonable. Be reasonable, Jesus. He's trying to get around the original intent of neighbor love requirements by reducing the demands to what he's currently doing. He wants to lower the bar so that he can say, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've loved my neighbor. But here's the thing, in his mind, the fact that he asked the question, and who is my neighbor, Reveals to us that in this man's mind it could not be the case that everyone's a neighbor You see in this man's mind. He had two categories. There were neighbors and there were non-neighbors Neighbors Neighbors were decent folk respectable in society likable people that he could relate to and non-neighbors were sinners Gentiles, those people. You see, this man has these two different categories. And no doubt, he had come across on that day, morally broken people who were in need. And he looked at them and he said, hmm, non-neighbor. And then a little while later, the man came across someone who was ethnically different who was in need and he looked at them and he said hmm non-neighbor and then he came across someone no doubt who was religiously different maybe he came across a a roman citizen in need who who worshiped many other gods and and he saw them in their need and he looked at them and he said hmm non-neighbor you know i'm pretty good at this neighbor love thing listen Anyone can think themselves good at neighbor love if they have this category of non-neighbor and every person you don't want to deal with, you just put in the category of non-neighbor. Anyone can think themselves good at neighbor love on that framework. But what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to push him farther than he ever imagined. He's going to show him that his way of thinking is completely contrary to the indiscriminate love and compassion That God requires in his word. Jesus isn't going to let him off the hook. He's not going to let this man soften the demands of neighbor love. He's not going to allow this man to have the category of non-neighbor at all. And so what Jesus does is he moves in on him with this parable. And as he tells the man uh, uh, the story about the, the, the man on the journey to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, the presumption is that this is a Jewish man on his journey. He gets attacked by robbers. And the text says that they robbed him, beat him, and left him half dead. And then in the next part of the story, he introduces a little bit of hope. It's like some optimism is injected into the story because all of a sudden a priest shows up. It's a priest. Now, the fact that this is a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho makes it very likely that this priest had just come from doing his service in the temple. To to bring it to contemporary, it's like the pastor who just got done preaching his sermon, got down out of the pulpit and started going out to go home. And he encounters someone broken on the street. This is the picture now this note of optimism this is a a righteous religious man we think right he's the man who represents the height of their spirituality and what happens he passes by now listen the text doesn't tell us why the man passed by Uh, that jesus doesn't give any explanation that the priest might have had a decent reason maybe he was trying to remain religiously pure Maybe he thought this was a dead body and and maybe it would defile him ritually so that he he couldn't be clean. But Jesus doesn't give any of the reasons that the man didn't help. He simply points out the fact that he offered no help. But then the story continues. And a Levite Shows up on the scene again another glimmer of hope because you know, this was like a this was like a JV priest You know like he wasn't on the all-star team, but you know, he could hold it down as the sixth man You know in, in a pinch he could step in and do the ministry This was also someone who had devoted their life to the ministry surely the Levite would stop But he passes by as well another exemplary spiritual man walks by now here's what you have to appreciate what jesus is doing with the priest and the levite is he's showing the lawyer what his thinking looks like in story form this is what it looks like when you have a category of neighbor and non-neighbor this is what it looks like when you feel like you can safely place certain people in this category Uh, Where you pay attention to them and, and you can safely put people in another category where you ignore them This is what Jesus is doing. He's showing the man his thinking in story form and As listeners the tension is building the tension is building and we're all Wondering who is going to help this dying man? Who is going to come to his assistance Who is going to provide for this man's brokenness and his need? We're all aching, longing, leaning forward into the story. Now, what was a typical Jewish convention at the time in a story like this was to make a move that was anti-clerical, which is to say they hold up the, the religious leaders in contrast to the ordinary Israelite. That's usually how these stories went. But something very different happens here because what Jesus introduces is not an anti-clerical idea. He introduces not an ordinary Israelite, but a Samaritan. These were people who were very low on the totem pole. These were arch rivals with the Jewish people. It would have graded this Jewish man who was listening so bad because this is a completely unexpected person. This is an enemy coming to rescue his enemy. This is someone he would have had no regard for, completely unexpected. This would have been someone that he despised, but the despised person becomes the hero. The despised person comes to the rescue. The despised person outshines the best that the lawyer and his tribe had to offer. He shows the Samaritan to be greater. Now, this this story, by the time this story ends, the call to neighbor love is landing forcefully on the lawyer. And it should land forcefully on us as well. It should land forcefully on us and lead us to repentance. It should lead us to repentance. How do you respond to the hurting, needy people that you regularly encounter? How do you respond to those who are on the social margins? How do you respond to people who are crying for help, crying for justice, crying out for change? because they feel crushed by the weight of the fall. How do you respond to your neighbors? Jesus is calling you to be their neighbors. Jesus is calling you to be their neighbor. Neighbor love is to mark us most deeply. This is the call, but let's look at the cost of neighbor love in our second point. The cost of neighbor love. Now, if you take a look at verse 33, we see how the Samaritan deals with the broken man that he finds laying half dead on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there are five concrete actions that the Samaritan demonstrates. Take a look at the text. First, he looks on the man with compassion. Second, he draws near to him. Third, he dresses the man's wounds. Fourth, he carries the man to a place of refuge. He doesn't leave him where he found him. Fifth, he pays the bill for the man's ongoing care and comfort. Not only does he stay the night with the man to tend to him, but when he has to leave, he leaves enough resources, enough money there by some estimates to last for 24 days of that man's care so that he can get back up on his feet and get rehabilitated. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer is so frustrated with this story, he won't even name the Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. He didn't like that. He did not like that. And then Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Now, here's the thing. We often start with the wrong idea when it comes to neighbor love. As, as Americans, as people in Western, secular, modern culture, no matter what subculture you're a part of, the macro culture we're all a part of, leaves us with these ideas when it comes to neighbors and love. We say, okay, how can I do what Jesus is calling us to do without altering my lifestyle? How can I give like this without having to really give up anything of great value or importance to me? How can I help people without imposing too much on my own freedoms and enjoyment? How can I find the painless, costless way of loving neighbors? And the answer to all these questions, of course, is you can't. You can't. Not if you're going to do it like Jesus says it must be done. Now, imagine... This lawyer walking away, stunned. Imagine he's stunned. He has been shaken to his core. And if we're really hearing what the text is saying, we should be shaken to our core as well. Because remember, the whole question that initiated this exchange was the question of what someone has to do to inherit eternal life. Perfect love is the standard. And if we're honest, we know we fail that standard, don't we? How many of you have loved perfectly in the last year? Oh, no hands. What about in the last month? Okay. What about in the last week? Perfect. What about in the last day? What about in the last hour? What about in the last minute? Has there ever been a time where we have loved perfectly? Has there ever been a time where we have fully and consistently demonstrated the kind of love that Jesus says leads to eternal life? That's why it should cause us to tremble. This is a powerful rebuke of our tame, sluggish, Americanized, bare minimum approach to neighbor love, which is simply an expression of our small love for God. But it also challenges our culture's redefinition of love. Love is love, is what is said today. That's the mantra today, right? We hear that often. But it assumes, listen, it assumes that we really understand what love is and what love is supposed to be. And that the loves in our hearts are already proportionate and rightly ordered. You know, there's a concept in Augustine. Augustine talks about how your orders are love, your loves are ordered. He talks about disordered loves. And what he says is that if you want to get down into the nitty gritty to understand how to grow in love, then it's it's about the ordering of your love. He says you should not love anything more than another thing that should be loved less. And you shouldn't love something less, that should be loved more. And you shouldn't love things equally, they should be loved disproportionately. For example, I love God and I love chocolate cake. But if I love chocolate cake more than I love God or as much as I love God, my love is disordered. Now, take that logic again. You can love football, fellas, ladies too. You can love football, but if you love football more than your spouse, you have a disordered love. You have a love problem. And what we see in our lives so often is that we love certain things more than we love our neighbors. We love our comfort more than we love our neighbors. We love our financial security more than we love our neighbors. And we love so many other things more than we love God. Our loves are disordered. The problem gets thicker. Because here's the thing, for, for secular people, if you're in here today and you are exploring the Christian faith, and you're not, you don't really believe in God, but you're, you're curious, you're exploring, I want to offer you a gentle challenge. I want you to think about how you ground love. How do you ground it? How can you say to someone else that they ought to love their neighbors? How can you tell them they ought to do justice? How, how can you tell them they ought to work for racial justice? How can you say that on your framework? I'm curious. I think what you'll find is that the secular version of love is purely therapeutic. Which is to say that the secular version of love isn't about the one you're loving. It's about you feeling better about yourself. It's about you projecting the identity that you want to project out into the world. Really, at the end of the day, it's a big exercise in narcissism because your love for other people is performative and it's meant to secure your own sense of worth. It's therapeutic. And I think that's a pretty shallow ground for love. And I think you would agree with that. Maybe you have never explored the roots, the axioms that drive you. You see, Jesus is cutting across all these thin definitions and thin expressions of love, and he's taking us much deeper than we would ever want to go. He's showing us the cost of love. You see, the problem with the secular vantage point on love is that it does not account for the fact that we are sinners, that we are selfish, that we are self-absorbed, that we are greedy, that we are materialistic, that we are broken, that we're fearful of other people. That that, that that does not account in the secular framework. And that is a problem. But this vantage point also lets us off the hook when it gets uncomfortable. When we are faced with people we don't want to love, we just do what feels good. And here's the thing here's the thing that we need to understand. Not just for secular folks, but for all of us. Here's the reality humanity has already shown that we wouldn't recognize love if we were staring him in the face. We beheld the God who is love in the flesh, and we opposed him, we rejected him, we betrayed him. We ran from him. We crucified him and we buried him. The bad news is that we have failed love. But the good news is that love will not fail us. Do you see it? The only way you can live into this kind of neighbor love is if you know yourself to be the neighbor who was loved. The neighbor who was loved by Jesus. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus didn't look at us and say, non-neighbor? You ought to be glad this morning that Jesus is better than our kind of love. When humanity leapt headlong into sin and misery, all of heaven was aching and wondering who will love these dying people. Then along came compassion. From the most unexpected person. Along came compassion from the God you despised and rejected. Everything changed when the God-man arrived on the scene. He was not who we expected. He was despised and rejected, but he becomes the climax of redemption. Redemption. The love of Jesus outshines the best that the lawyer and his tribe have to offer, and the love of Jesus outshines the best that the world has to offer us today. Because before Stevie Wonder called to say, I love you, before Al Green was talking about love and happiness, before Beyonce was dangerously in love, the Lord is revealed in scripture to be love itself. Scripture reveals God to be love. And the good news of Jesus is that even though we have opposed love and betrayed love and crucified love and buried love, love has risen from the grave. That's good news. Love looked on us with compassion when the world, the flesh and the devil left us not just half dead, but completely dead. Love drew near to us in our distress. Love dressed every wound. Love carried us to refuge in the kingdom. Love paid the bill for our ongoing care and comfort. Then love sent us into the world to share this good news. Love ascended to the right hand of the Father to speak your case by name. And love has promised to come back and make all things new. God is love, and that is most fully revealed in Jesus. It's in Jesus that we get our standard of neighbor love. You wanna know what love is? Look at Jesus, his life, his heart. His actions, his sufferings, his sacrifice, that is love. And that is the kind of love that God calls his people to. I hope you see that there is nothing that Jesus calls you to that he has not done before you. And in to a far greater degree than you ever could. We have been raised up with Christ that we might love like Christ. The redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ not only covers our failures to love, but it also transforms you and gives you the motivation and the sustaining grace to continue on in love. Do you see the good news? Jesus was not lying when he said, if you want to inherit eternal life. You got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we all know we're dead to rights on that grid, but we look to the perfect life of love that Jesus lived and credited to us and he died to cancel out our failures to love. That's good news. And that is the source from which you begin to move out in love. You begin to confront your fears and the smallness of your heart. That's where, like the Grinch, after you experience the joy of the gospel, your heart grows three sizes. You see what I'm saying? It's only the gospel that can grow you as a lover. It's only the gospel. It gives you transcendent motivation to love, not just people who are convenient, not just people who are like you, not just people you enjoy spending time around, not just people that you understand. Everybody always, everybody always. You know, because of the kind of good news that we have, we ought to be giving away love like we're made of the stuff. You know what I'm saying? That's how Bob Goff put it. We ought to be the kind of people who are always in the mix, showing love to those in need. You know, because of the gospel, here's the good news you don't have to work for love, you get to work from love. And that's a big difference, y'all. When you're working for love, you never are quite sure if you are secure. You're always anxious and fearful. You're always running around wondering if it was good enough. Put that away. You don't work for love. God has loved you. He set his love on you before the foundations of the world. And he came to seal that love when Jesus came. And he seals that love further when his spirit opens up your heart to see the grace and glory of Jesus. And you believe and repent and come home. You work from that love And if you're working from that love, you never run out of juice. You don't run out of reasons. You don't run out of motivation because every day, what do you wake up to? New mercies, fresh grace, abounding grace, grace that's greater than all your sins. That's what you wake up to every morning. And that's what drives the Christian life of love. You see, a neighbor loving Savior is out to produce a neighbor loving people. He wants you to be a community of Good Samaritans. For our neighbors, listen, do you see how the gospel works? Because of the way that Jesus loved us, now for our neighbors, you know what we do? One, we look with compassion, two, we draw near, we don't try to do it from a distance. Jesus did not try to work out redemption from a distance. He did not commute from heaven to earth every day. It wasn't like every day, five o'clock. Jesus said, all right, y'all, I'll see you tomorrow. That's no, he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We draw near three. We dress wounds. We attend to the wounded. And there are all kinds of wounds that result from the fall emotional wounds, spiritual wounds, social wounds, relational wounds, marital wounds, parenting wounds. There's all kinds of wounds. We dress wounds. Four, we carry people to refuge in the kingdom. Okay? And that is to say, like the friends who brought their their boy to Jesus, broke down through the roof, and lowered him down, we ought to be the kind of people who are carrying our neighbors to refuge through prayer and readiness to serve, carrying them the refuge. And then finally paying the cost for their care. It is going to cost us to love our neighbors the way that Jesus says we must love them, but it's a cost worth paying. It's a cost worth paying because you know what we are as the church? I'm gonna put this in a little fancy terms, okay? But I mean it. We are the hermeneutical grid by which our neighbors Look at the gospel and look at God and look at scripture, which is to say we are the interpretive grid for our neighbors How do they come to understand and think about what the Christian faith is and who God is and who Jesus is by observing us? Are we helping them to rightly interpret what the Christian life is and what the gospel is all about? Through the lives that we live and the words that we share with them let me give you a few applications, okay? That's the life we're called to. We're called to work that out like Jesus and to work it out with Jesus. But how do we do it? Okay, here's some applications. One, the first thing I want you to do, I want to encourage you to run all your excuses to the gospel. Run all of your excuses to the gospel. And this is what I mean by that. A lot of times we will look at people, neighbors, And we'll be like, oh, Lord, we don't have anything in common. This is going to be awkward. I don't know how I'm going to connect with them. I really want you to send someone else, Lord. I don't want to do it. Now, run that excuse to the gospel. Could you imagine the father saying to the son, son, I want you to go and save those sinners. Could you imagine Jesus going, "Oh, oh, father. We don't have anything in common. It's going to be awkward when I show up and I'm like, hey, I'm God in the flesh. You know, it's not going to really connect. You know, I'm holy. They're not. I'm righteous. They're not. I'm amazing. They're terrible. We don't really have anything in common. If Jesus made the same excuses that we make, where would we be? But you know what the good news is? He didn't make the excuses. And where does that leave you now? That is what leads you to give up on your excuses and to start looking for ways to make it work rather than reasons to not try. All right? Two, I want you to focus on becoming overdoing, okay? Many times when we wake up in the morning, the most pressing question that is on us is, what do I have to do today? And the to-do list is like, oh my goodness, I got so much to do today. And boom, 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 boom. I want to tell you something you can check off a lot of to-dos on your list and never become a changed person. You can check off a lot of to-dos without having a changed heart. You can check off a lot of to-dos without ever growing up in the faith. The most important thing that you have to answer every morning is not what must I do today, but who must I become today because I'm loved by Jesus. Who must I become today because I am so loved by the Lord? I must become more gracious. I must become more patient, trusting that my father is always up to doing good. And, and his plan is always going to be better than mine and his timing is always going to be better than mine. Who do I have to become today? I have to become more prayerful because I want to commune with the one who came to redeem my soul and to make the whole world new. The one who has loved me in this way. Who has given me such meaning and such purpose in my life, such direction when I would otherwise be lost. That's who I must become today. Who must I become today? I must become a neighbor loving child of God because I was the neighbor who was loved. Focus on becoming and the doing will sort itself out. And what you will also realize is that sometimes when you're focused on who you're becoming more than what you're doing, Certain things that are on your to-do list that shouldn't be on your to-do list will actually take their proper place and get off your to-do list. There are certain things that you're doing right now simply to try and establish your identity. You don't need to do that. That's unnecessary work. That's been done for you already. (laughs) There are certain things that are on your schedule that you're doing because you are trying to impress other people so that you can really get accepted and be a belonger. Guess what? You don't have to do that. God says you're a belonger in His family. You don't need to fight and win other people's approval and have other people like you. You don't have to live under the burden that someone somewhere is going to be disappointed with you. You see, when you're focused on who you're becoming, it changes the whole dynamic of your day. I want to invite you into that. And think about the neighbor love thing in terms of who you're becoming even more than what you're doing. Third, I want to encourage you to bring your calendar before the Lord and to ask him what needs to be adjusted so that you can live into this life more beautifully. Maybe you need to make some adjustments in terms of how you budget your time. Do you, are you creating margin for mission in your calendar? That's just a very concrete thing. And, and you know what? One of the practices that I make my staff do and one of the practices that I've adopted myself is I created an ideal week, okay? Okay. What does an ideal week for Russ Whitfield look like every hour accounted for? Sleep, taking care of my body, when I'm going on dates with my wife and when I'm spending time with my kids and my work hours. And then I do actual weeks. Anytime I get out of whack or I'm feeling stressed or something's gone haywire, I do an actual week and I compare it against my ideal week, which has been signed off on by my community, by my people who know me and love me. That... That calendar should be a visual representation of a growing health and integrity in your life, a growing wholeness. And if you see anything that's out of whack there, that's a concrete, practical way to start thinking through some changes. Okay. At the end of the day, what I want to encourage you to do is think about the ordinary means of grace and the ordinary moments of life. The ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments and prayer. How do you grow up? How do, you, how do you grow up in the faith? Well, it's like this. If you want to get hit by a car, you go run around out on the street, right? If you want to get hit by a train, you go stand on some train tracks. If you want to get hit by the grace of the Lord, you go to the word, the sacraments, and prayer. You don't need a fancy conference to get some quiver in your liver. Oh, I, I got it now. Okay, I'm changed. I'm changed. You don't need a mountaintop experience. God does not microwave maturity. He does it in the slow, ordinary moments through the ordinary means. You don't need a mountaintop. Think about this. Jesus, most of his life was lived in obscurity, in ordinary, mundane moments, and do you know that you are saved as much by what Jesus did in the mundane moments of life as you are at, in, for what he did at the cross? Because if Jesus had been unfaithful just once in any of those ordinary moments, he would have had no righteousness to give you. We would be lost. But Jesus was faithful in the ordinary. And I, I, know, it's, I know sometimes you hear a sermon like this and it's like, okay, let's take over the world. Let's, let's take over Jackson, right? I want to encourage you to think smaller this time and think, okay, where are the immediate opportunities in my life right now that I can begin to go deeper into this step by step? Because you know what? You don't rise. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits, and it's basically a book on how do you begin to embrace change in your life, and he said this. This is the gem. This is fire. He said. Nobody rises to the level of their goals. We fall to the level of our systems. He said every team in the NFL had a goal to win the Super Bowl this year, but only one team reached their goal. He said that shows you that goals are not enough. You need to have the systems in place. I'll put it to you this way. You don't rise to the level of your inspiration. You fall to the level of your formation. Your practices, the life and practices and habits that you have embraced in your faith. So it's ordinary means and ordinary moments. It's this love. It's this grace. It's this redemptive social action that reveals Jesus to be beautiful and believable. I want to invite you to place your faith in him. To maybe do it for the first time today. To say all right i don't have it all figured out but that that is what i need i need that kind of i need to be loved like that and i want to love like that and i now see that the gospel is the only way to do it you know what you need all you need is your nothing (laughs) you come to god with an open empty hand and he will fill it all you have to do is acknowledge your need that's all you need is your need to trust in jesus and if you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, I just want you to listen to this passage, worship the Lord, trust in Him, and seek to follow Him, growing up in His grace, so that you may be the kind of Samaritan that He was to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for teaching us. Thank You for loving us. We thank You for coming to find us. We thank you, Lord, that you did not put us in the category of non-neighbor, but you loved us to the end. We are grateful, Lord, and we pray that you would help us. Give us the grace to respond to your love in the way that we love other people. Point it out specifically, Lord, if there are particular sins that we need to repent of particularly, would you show us, reveal it to us? If there are particular patterns that we have in our lives that need to be changed, would you point it out, Lord? And would you give us the grace when we hear you pointing it out, when we sense that you are through our community and through the teaching of your word guiding us in a fresh direction, help us have the courage and the consistency by your grace to live into it, to make the changes. We ask for your grace to do this. Bless Redeemer Church in this way, to be a neighbor-loving community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.